What's up, shipheads? It's Bull here. And I am Dez. And we are excited. We are here to announce the launch of our new feed, the Party Like It's 90s feed. Listen, everyone loves the 90s. It's one of the best decades out there. Just thinking back of that time in your life in the 90s. On this feed, we're going to be tackling all things from that decade. We're going to be taking our favorite show formats and bringing them over to do so. Dad, tell me a little bit about some of the film and TV content we have coming their way. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going deep into the closet and we're taking out that FUBU jacket and we're putting new batteries into our Tamagotchi. So we're, we're ready to go here, Bull. And you've got all the franchises that you already know and love. You've got movie drafts, you've got Take 5, and you've got these deep dives that we do. And we're going to really just go right towards the 90s. We're looking at year by year, the best movies of the 90s. And we're doing draft style head to head. Then we're looking at some deep dives. We're talking about all your classics from the 90s. The Big Lebowski, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings. There's all kinds of great deep dives. We're looking into the 90s for this one here. And then you got your take fives, your top five lists of all the things 90s. So, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. So get your Furbies all lined up and enjoy. If that wasn't enough, we're bringing in all the rest of our network in to join us in building out this feed. We're going to be bringing in the Scary Movie Project team to do horror-specific releases of the 90s. We're going to be bringing in the sports team to tackle the dream team drafts of the 90s, make the best super team, one of the best rosters. We'll be tackling all of that. And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be getting jiggy with it and taking our draft format and doing year-by-year music mixtape drafts. Build out your ideal mixtape for any given year. We're going to be going down the whole decade. If you love the 90s, if you were born and you lived through the 90s, if you weren't and you're jealous and you want to go back and see what everyone's going crazy about, this is for all of you. So make sure you subscribe. Lots of fun content coming your way. And we're going to party like it's the 90s. Yep. Hey, there you are. Welcome to another episode of Something From Nothing. I hear the cool kids are calling it SFN, but I wouldn't know anything about that. Thanks so much for joining us and continuing to listen to the episodes. This is number six, if you're counting. I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, and I think you'll find a lot of my guests are either based here or somewhere pretty close. That doesn't necessarily mean Something From Nothing itself is a just a Columbus podcast. We've been lucky so far to have a number of wonderful people join us from well outside the Buckeye State, and I'll continue to pursue guests from far and wide. I say this mainly because we look for guests with interesting stories, people that others might relate to or learn something from, or at the very least can enjoy listening to for 20 to 30 minutes. I'd like listeners to want to listen to the guests, even if they aren't big fans of that artist or author's particular discipline. In in doing these interviews, I, I I found I connect with the subjects through shared situations, shared goals, similar processes and backgrounds. And maybe on some level, it's because we do share a certain proximity and have some shared life experiences, but I'm not sure. I could say I understand someone's writing because we both come from the Midwest, but the Midwest isn't just the Midwest anymore. It's a series of states and counties and cities and neighborhoods and neighborhoods within neighborhoods that all have their own cosmos, their own uh, history, their own roadblocks sometimes. Talking to an indie author in Chicago or Pittsburgh or St. Louis, uh, I find they might have entirely sets of hurdles and or solutions that I have personally and professionally not run into yet. That's why I'm thrilled you're with me for this. Talking to people is always a surprise. I might find we have something in common or that something I assumed about someone is completely false. Maybe if you hear this from LA or London or Singapore, you'll hear something of yourself in the interviews, or maybe you'll find a new favorite author 
or artist or musician. I know I've walked away from each of these interviews with an extra bit of inspiration and energy. So thanks for joining me. I'm Matt Betts, and this is Something From Nothing. Thanks for joining us for this uh, first segment of Cryptids and Coffee today. I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Gagne. Uh, she's an aspiring uh, mathematical game theorist and pulp fiction writer and uh, crazy for cryptids, right? Oh, you got it. Thanks so much for having me here, Matt. No problem. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I, 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 and I, when we were discussing, initially discussing this uh, segment, um, you know, I, I was worried that maybe when people listen, they're like, well, I don't want to listen to people you know, talk about uh, monsters for, you know, 10 or 20 minutes or whatever. Um, but what we really want to do is talk about, you know, cryptids and uh, and their place in, I think, pop culture history and, and sort of uh, pop culture, you know, in general and uh, and kind of explore where they come from and, and how you might know them. You might know this monster from this movie or that TV show, right? Totally, totally. Oh, this yeah. is going to be so exciting. <laughs> so let's uh, quick do a, a definition uh, of what a cryptid is. You want to uh, you want to tr- see if you could uh, give us a general idea? Yeah, definitely. So I, when I think cryptid first, I almost feel like, you know, a cryptid is kind of like an urban legend personified. You know, it's something that's very local to a particular area, but at the same time then becomes almost kind of internationally known for sort of its story, its narrative. But once again, very much personified in a very distinct creature that is probably somewhat anatomically, you know, kind of a horror. Right. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And I think uh, when you say internationally, there's also, as I was doing some research, I, I, I went various places. It can also be very, very uh, regional and very specific to certain places. Uh, when I was going through some of these lists, I was finding, you know, things I'd never heard of, you know, but they were very specific to this town or to this uh, sighted one time in, 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 you know, along this creek, along this road or whatever. Uh, they can be, you know, something that gets huge like uh, Yeti or Bigfoot that everybody knows about, or it can be really tiny. Like here in Ohio, we have the Loveland Frog Monster somewhere. Uh, that, that's a pretty fun legend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, the Urban uh, Dictionary has a good definition that kind of goes right along with what you said. It's an uh, obscure, undocumented creature, typically originating or typically originating from folklore, uh, uh, could be mythological in nature. Uh, their existence is sometimes only recognized as pseudoscience, which I guess is true. Um, until you can find some proof, I guess they're going to call it pseudoscience, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like I said, we we want to uh, uh, talk about some of the famous and some of the maybe we'll we'll switch off and do a really famous monster and then do one no one's heard of uh, the next time. But um, what we want to do with this segment is obviously it's called cryptids and coffee. Uh, we're going to drink some coffee uh, from, you know, exotic places like Colombia and 
Seattle and Cleveland, you know, really exotic blends of coffee. Or uh, for me, from down the street here at uh, uh, Crimson Cup, there's they, they've got some of my favorite coffee here in Columbus. How about you? Oh, heck yeah. Crimson Cup is totally the best place to go in Columbus for coffee. Here, um, I'm coming to you from Duke University's campus. We have a couple of really great spots, but personally, my bias is we have uh, a coffee shop called Belly Union, and I will 100% go for their mochas. They're just so good. Nice. Sounds good to me. Um, So the other thing, obviously, we're going to drink some coffee. We're going to talk about uh, the origins of some of these famous monsters, you know, uh, do they, like you said, do they start in a legend? Are they folklore in nature? Is it something that sort of cropped up out of nowhere? You know, is there sort of a credible source for it? And then last, uh, we want to talk about their cultural sort of impact, their their footprint on society. Uh, and, you know, as someone who writes books that have cryptids in them occasionally, uh, we'll certainly talk books, um, TV, movies, uh Man, music, games, uh, you know, all through pop, pop culture, you're going to see cryptids. And uh, and I think we, you know, we'll get to as many as we can, you know. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, right. So for you, what uh, what are some monsters you'd love to get to? What are some cryptids you'd love to talk about at the, at some point? Oh, goodness. This is such a good question. Well, I feel like, uh, you know, it harkens back to our, our first meeting, right? You know, bonding right. over the Mothman in particular. Right. And, you know, the Mothman has such, I feel like, a um, a high pedestal in, in Ohio yeah. culture in particular, too. You know, I remember coming to Duke and being here in North Carolina and trying to explain to people what exactly the Mothman is and why everybody's kind of so obsessed with the Mothman. And I feel like people didn't really understand it at first. But um, it it seems that the Mothman is very much growing in more pop culture, especially within my generation as well, too. And so I'm excited to almost like, you know, cryptids has kind of taken on a subculture in my, yeah, in my particular age group. Like there are ideas of like cryptid core, like what's the aesthetic of a cryptid? How do you dress Mm. like a cryptid? And, you know, I think that's an exciting perspective that I'm hoping to bring to the discussion a little bit. But um, for me, I remember reading John Keel's Mothman prophecies as a kid and being scared shitless. Like I was so (laughs) terrified by this book. And I just lived in like constant fear that like I was going to wake up one night and see just like two glowing red eyes in my Mm. like window. Like, you know, he talks about in this book and just, oh my gosh, I think I was just, I was always a huge fan of reading about conspiracy theories and cryptids just because I loved how much they terrified me. You know, I was Mm. always someone who loved horror movies, was always someone who wanted to ride the biggest, baddest roller coaster in the park, primarily just because of (laughs) how much I enjoyed getting afraid and being terrified by things. So I think I was drawn to cryptids at a young age because it was almost this like, it was almost like Pokemon meets like a horror movie. (laughs) The adult version of Pokemon, the, the frightening version. Exactly, exactly. And just kind of this idea of like, how scary of a monster can I find within like the, you know, this section of the library, or this anthology of cryptids that I can just check out. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and you talked about Mothman. I think you when we talked about him, you said you haven't been to the Mothman Festival yet. 
I have not. I have been really <laughs> hoping to go because actually I didn't – I've totally been to the Mothman Museum. I've been to the um, uh, the Point Pleasant area and remember touring it as a kid after reading the John Keel book and just thinking that was the coolest thing. Um, and, and so I didn't know about the festival until I visited for the first time, which was probably uh. right around my freshman year of college. Um, but I'm really hoping to go, especially after the pandemic. Um, I think that would just be incredible. And it's just, you know, I've been there a couple of times and I kept meaning to go back. And now, of course, I couldn't for the pandemic. But um, there's just so much going on there. There's, you know, vendors that are selling all kinds of great cryptid stuff from Bigfoot and also UFOs and, and uh, of course, Mothman and things like that. But there's, you know, they. Uh, I think they still do a parade. They do tours of the of the area where where the uh, Mothman had been sighted. Um, and co- there's cosplay that comes up. People dressed as Mothman or the Men in Black or whatever. And it's just such a fun time. You know, it's just so much going on that it's it's almost impossible to uh, to take it all in. So yeah, Mothman is definitely one of my favorites. And then of course you can't talk about Mothman and the festival without. Uh, talking about the giant statue in you know the middle of town, uh, which is just awesome. So I'd love to talk about him as well. I think maybe we talked, we'd mentioned maybe getting around to uh, the Jersey Devil or Spring Hill Jack or something. I think we both were interested in in Jersey Devil. Um, but I think that the Jersey Devil has some really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's almost like puritanical roots. Yes, absolutely. I think it was. It's, uh, I, I don't even, if we're going to talk about it later, I don't want to try and guess, but I think it springs from uh, a child that was born. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, what I'm remembering right now, but um, I, I think you're right. I think it does have that sort of uh, that sort of aspect to it. And the other thing I really think will be fun, and we'll have to discuss this, is whether is how we're going to approach Bigfoot, because there are so many local and regional variations of Bigfoot from you know, the skunk ape or the, you know, the year and the, you know, Yeti and the abominable snowman and Yowie. And depending on what legend and what region it came from, uh, there's just so many of them. And I, I'm really intrigued by how those derivations start or, or, or where, you know, how it got to where it is, you know? Yeah, definitely. Oh, and we've totally got to get you talking about White Anvil, like 100%. <laughs> this is uh, The secret plan has been to, to, you know, learn more about your book and learn more about the <laughs> research process behind it. Yeah, the first one I, the first sort of cryptid book I wrote was about sort of genetically modified Sasquatch that, uh, you know, run amok in the mountains in uh, Canada. And it was so much fun to talk about, or to write, and just so much fun to research and to, you know, kind of get into. So, yeah, I, I, I'd love to talk about that. It was, uh, it's a great writing experience, you know? That's awesome. We also kind of want to get a few guests in here. Maybe if we're talking about Mothman, we can get a, a guest who's a Mothman expert or, or, you know, have written a book about Mothman or, or is just, you know, has fun talking about it. I think that'd be a nice element uh, once we get going on this. Totally, totally. That would be incredible. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I uh, introduced you, uh, we talked about you being a mathematical game theorist, and I know you... Uh, um, you know, you're you're in Duke doing a lot of the, uh, doing the program there. Um, when we talk about cryptids and we talk about you know uh, the possibility that they really are out there, 
does your mathematical brain ever stop and go, wait a minute, what's the possibility that this, uh, this creature could really live for a hundred years and nobody really have proof? You know, how does that, how does, how does that part of your brain line up with the, you know, the, the cryptid loving part of your brain? Oh my gosh, this is such a good question. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of going to out myself a little bit here. I definitely lean more on the skeptic side, um, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to conspiracy theories and cryptids as well. Um, but I think, I think that skepticism is important. Um, uh, especially when approaching kind of this potential pseudoscience. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there isn't. But if there's something there, you know, we can approach right. it with logic. We can approach it with uh, kind of sound reasoning uh, that hopefully mathematics and statistics can bring to the table, um, you know, and just and really try and uncover the truth. I don't know. I was I was always a huge Dana Scully fan. Uh, yeah. I came to college and I had a really awesome opportunity to come speak and be a big part of um a class on campus that one of my favorite professors, Dr. Elise Wang, taught, which was kind of about the science behind why people believe in conspiracy theories and why nice. conspiracy okay. theories come to be. And that was just that's totally been one of my best experiences at Duke um, about just really kind of getting to dig into the psychology. And, you know, there's a lot of psychology, I mean, I guess, psychological background of why we kind of need mystery and legends sure. in our life and, and narrative. And I think that's been something that I've been fascinated for a while. But I know I think the best thing about studying statistics and probability is it's very, very hard to find something that's completely impossible. So, you know, there that you know. tiny little statistical probability of there being, you know, maybe a genetic abnormality or, you know, some right. some strange mutation of an animal, you know, it can never be 100 percent ruled out. So. <laughs> the believer no, side of me is like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Right. And you found a lot of that on, on X-Files as well in their stories is that, well, maybe it wasn't Bigfoot, but it was some sort of genetic abnormality that made it look like it was Bigfoot or something. And, and it was always fun to to sort of speculate which side was, you know, really right on that and everything. But as, as for being a, a skeptic, I'm, I am the same way. You know, I, I love and that's kind of why I wanted to do this segment. I love the. The origin stories, I guess, of monsters and and the you know the reasoning behind maybe where these cryptids first uh, came to prominence, or 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 you know the study of UFOs when you know there's one sighting and then suddenly there's a dozen sightings. So the psychology behind why if you're looking for a UFO, you're probably going to find one or or something like that. You know what I mean? Or find something you think is a UFO. Um, so I'm definitely in the, the skeptical area, but I just love the stories, um, especially when you get them firsthand. Like at the at the uh, Mothman Festival, you do have a lot of speakers who, you know, might have seen uh, what, uh, you know, maybe not Mothman, but other creatures and, and tell their story about how they came across them. And it's just great to hear what that was like for them or, you know, what their story is. Definitely. Well, and I think I think this is something, too, that you can probably relate with as well, Matt, especially, you know, as, as someone who's trying to be a scientist, but a, like a fiction author at the same time. Right. You know, I think a lot of my favorite parts is like, you know, in your science work, you, you do you deal with a lot of really cool hypotheses, you know, like right. something could be a possibility. And, you know, eventually later down the line, you might learn, oh, this really cool hypothesis, it doesn't work out. Like, you know, yeah. there's, there's no substantiated evidence for it. But I feel like right. that's the part where like my like fiction writer instinct swoops in is like, no, now I can use this for a good plot line, you know, yeah. so it's kind of like, where, where science cuts off is kind of where fiction can step in and have a sure. lot of fun. And I think you can find science in fiction at the same time, too. Absolutely. Uh, well, for uh, the two books that I did, uh, that took place during the Civil War, uh, I theorize, theorize that, you know, the, the in my book, at least, the fictional part of my history, uh, I theorize that they had to call a truce to fight a zombie outbreak, basically. 
And so I had to go through and figure out where their technology was at the time and what I could fudge, you know, maybe uh, from this where I'm stopping at, you know, this year, maybe five years later is when they invented, you know, a certain type of gun or, or something like that. Could I uh, honestly, you know, uh, fudge it enough to say, okay, well, because this additional aspect of war was happening, could they have rushed into that uh, that sudden development? Maybe they could have, you know, pushed up that development because suddenly they're looking for new weapons or or whatever. Um, could I, you know, logically uh, suggest that maybe something was moved up or done faster or done at a different time than it actually was in real life? while adding in the speculative element. And, you know, if it, if, if it made sense to me, it made sense. And if it didn't, I usually dropped it. But um, you're right, you know, as a fictional, you know, as a fiction writer, you're, you're always sort of doing that what if, and maybe the what if is, you know, something that has to do with science or something that has to do with, you know, a, a new invention or whatever. And uh, if you can make it work, you can make it work. I love it. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. And I think uh, we, we decided that our first... Uh, our first case that we're going to talk about when we get going on this in probably a couple of weeks here will be Bigfoot. Uh, and we'll sort of dif- discuss, you know, what version of Bigfoot or if we want to do all the versions of Bigfoot. Uh, but you can guess we'll talk about Harry and the Hendersons because, you know, that's a great Bigfoot movie. Um, and, well, there was uh, in X-Files, I'm, they, they saw Bigfoot. And also uh, the $6 million man. Uh, had, way back in the seventies, I guess was uh, had a had had met Sasquatch at some point in time. So we will go into all that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you, Max, so much for joining me. And we, like I said, we'll jump into this in a couple weeks. And uh, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I cannot wait to get started. All right. We will talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. time for a segment we like to call explain this to me and today we're going to be talking with uh my friend author poet teacher editor and my part-time nemesis mercedes yardley hey mercedes how are you good good to see you or not uh, see well see here it's all the same now it's technology we can see and hear all at once everything that's right everything you're doing all the time if that Yes, and that frightens me that you can see and hear everything. But hey, uh, Mercedes and I are going to do a segment we're calling Explain This to Me. We both have picked out some weird news stories to share with each other and with you listeners, and uh, we'll um, you know talk about them as we go. Uh, it's just an exhibition, not a competition. Please, no wagering, and uh, this is purely informative. So, uh, and we'll give you the sources we're using, and we'll put the sources in our show notes. Uh, so we're going to start with one that I have uh, pulled out, and you had seen this before I even sent it to you, and I think it's already you know a really popular uh, uh, video and uh, and a really I think it's even a meme at this point. Uh, it happened in December of 2020. Uh, this is the Mental Floss blog that I got it from, but it, there's 
so many other places that that carried this. It's about an octopus. You know, we already know that that an octopus is uh, you know a really intelligent creature, um, and it, uh, it it has a lot of uh, I guess a lot of the signs of intelligence where it uh, you know it shows signs of problem solving and 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 you know it can camouflage itself and all these other things. Um, but this particular video and this particular story uh, talks about this you know octopus just punching a fish for no reason right in the face um he's not fighting with it they're not trying to you know chase anything i don't think or or you know just out of the blue uh in this video it's great this uh this <laughs> amazing octopus just whaps him that's kind of one of the best things i think i've ever seen in my whole life right yes <laughs> my i watch you know with my younger you know with my kids we watch all these great zoo things you know we oh look at the monkeys look at this uh, watch what they're doing all these great uh, you know uh, youtube videos but nothing is quite compared with the octopus punching the fish right in the face well he just cold cocks them right <laughs> boom right doesn't everybody have a friend like that <laughs> yes Kind of, you know, you never know. You never know exactly what's going to happen. Well, it just, it's delightful. I had, I'd seen this video, you know, before because yeah. apparently octopus punching is very popular in my house and <laughs> it never gets old. But you guys do have to go to the mental floss version because it has this line in here that just makes me laugh out loud. Plenty of fish in the study got it right in the snot box. <laughs> right in the snot box. I didn't know fish had snot boxes, but... There you go. And they also referred to it uh, in that uh, as a swift explosion, explosive motion with one arm, otherwise known as punching. <laughs> oh, is that, is that what it is? Yeah, that's what they said. <laughs> oh, oh, Matt Betts, Matt Betts. Yes. An underwater fist fight. Oh, my gosh. That comes around, doesn't it? Who else has something called underwater fist fight? Well, it's me, my uh, – Collection of poetry, for, which you can find on Amazon right now for, I don't know how much it's worth. But yes, now that you mention it, that is amazing. watch the video for an underwater fish I thought fight. of that and you didn't. I, I can't believe it either. I mean, I'm usually the first person to go out there and flog my books to people and you're right on it. I'm all over that. I'm <laughs> all over right. that, like an octopus on a, on a fish. Like, like eight arms or something. All over it. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to move into our uh, our culinary um, segment of this. Uh, explain this to me um, with another story. Uh, this one coming out of uh, Germany, coming out of Berlin. Uh, the headline from uh, Weird News on Huffington Post, the HuffPost dot com. Uh, <laughs> the headline is "Half Eaten Sausage Solves Nine Year Old German Burglary." I, I like how they put that because it yeah. sounds like the half-eaten sausage itself put on a Sherlock Holmes hat. Right. It had a trench coat. <laughs> Come on. We're going to go solve some crime. He's seen some hard days. That's right. He's seen some things. Uh, but basically, uh, they 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 solved this, uh, you know, almost a decade-long, uh, decade-old burglary after they checked this half-eaten piece of sausage uh, for DNA and it matched uh, the you know it matched up with a man who uh, who had been detained in France for an unrelated crime. So uh, I, you got to think about this. The guy, uh, let's see, the, the the crime was. I'm looking to see if it actually said down there. Um, they have a lot of really good puns in here. By the way, this this uh, this HuffPost story. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how he would have, you know, would he just have stopped and said, you know, I, I'm going to rob this place, but I'm feeling a little hungry. Oh, look, 
Yeah, look at that. There's a sausage right there. Well, and then why would you eat half of it? Just take it with you. (laughs) Yeah, eat the whole thing. Take it with you. I don't know, but then maybe maybe he's a slender, slim man, and that's all he needed was a nibble or two. Yeah, he just needed a little something to keep him going. And uh, uh, people's hard work. (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah so the the so some of the puns they said that the suspect is still free uh and worst case they say uh he could escape punishment because the statute of limitations has expired on the burglary which yeah, means I like he, how they say they're they're probably not going to extradite him to Germany for this and I'm like oh geez just <laughs> uh yeah it's, it's frustrating to me that we have like all these like murder cases that are going unsolved and yet they're like the sausage from two years ago. <laughs> we ought to test this sausage for DNA. <laughs> but yeah, what would prompt them to do that? You know, it's like, let's see, it's Thursday. You know, we've we've solved all the crime. Let's. But he lost it, but yeah, we solved all the crime in Germany. Hey, you want to test this? <laughs> or maybe maybe they had an intern or something, and they're like, okay, it's your first day. We just want you to do something simple, like I don't know, test for DNA on this sausage. Right? Okay. <laughs> Some scrappy intern that's going to, you know, save the world. That's right. But can you imagine being that intern and going, I found it. It matches this other guy. I'm sorry. The statute of limitations is is up. He's, he's not going to get, you know, uh, arrested or convicted. This origin story is what right, There you go. And then after that, what, what does he become? Uh, what, I don't know what his, his uh, superhero name would be, but he, he vows to fight crime wherever there's sausage, wherever there's DNA. What? I'm sorry, my alarm went off. Oh no! <laughs> for, for my children in school, because you know everybody's doing school at all weird times. Oh my gosh! All right, so you have the last story. You're going to finish this off, and it's still food related. Yes. Well, actually, I, as I would like to point out, these have all been food relating related, right. depending on how you feel about right. calamari and right. fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but this one, this one, this one, I'm not sure classifies as food. Technically. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll have to agree with that one. So <laughs> this one comes out of our Magic Wonderland Disney. Right. And downtown Disney is selling a new special, special corn dog. Corn. I'm with you with corn dogs. I'm, I'm on board. I love corn dogs. Um, so it's, it's a hot dog stuffed inside of a pickle, Ugh. which is then shoved on a stick, breaded, deep fried, and then served with creamy peanut butter. Okay, uh, I, you had me at corn dog. You lost me at everything else. Well, you know, and, and who doesn't love a good pickle? <laughs> right. Well, pickles are great. Sure. Yeah. I love peanut butter. I love peanut butter. Separately, they're terrific. Yeah, this is like the worst thing that that could ever happen. <laughs> now it, it says Disney Park, so I'm assuming it's both of them. It's, but it doesn't specify Florida or California. So it says, yeah, it says downtown Disney. So it says I, they're thirteen dollars. Oh my God! Thirteen dollars. Um, you can. It'll stay on Blue Ribbon Corn Dogs menu. So I don't know where that is because you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're like an official Disney uh, for both places or if they're. Uh, yeah. Uh, so first of all, gross, and second of all, thirteen dollars for this corn dog. That's the worst. I mean, Ugh. I was pregnant with triplets, and I never wanted this. <laughs> I, yeah, I never wanted those things individually. Not let alone together. You know. <laughs> When you were pregnant. I want to like shove this in my snot box, apparently, <laughs> and then I want right. to go on a ride. Right. I'd rather be punched by an octopus. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go on a ride where I'm punched by an octopus, <laughs> and then I'm going to throw this up everywhere. I just – This just yeah. seems like such a bad idea. 
And even the pictures don't look appetizing. It looks like a maraca, basically. It's like it's not. It's it's sort of like a cone shape, and or or it looks like a drumstick almost. From, yeah, it you looks know, from, like something you could you could defend yourself with if you. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. If you you know you're at the the you're at the amusement park and you know Goofy's coming at you and you just don't want any of it right now. It does yeah? That's yeah. right. Social distancing and just beat them away with this this monstrosity, and then I assume <sighs> you'd have to throw the peanut butter at them because no one's well, defeating. A corn dog well, well, that would yeah, that would slow them down. Peanut butter's, you know. I saw that in Looney Tunes as a kid. I know, I know right. how that works. It's a fact. If you saw it in Looney Tunes, uh, yeah. So that we got that from the uh, iHeartRadio blog, uh, JoJo Wright's uh, blog. Um, but it's really it, it, they show like a, they have a, uh, we'll put the, the the link up. But there's a a cross section of it that just shows you each layer, and it just gets it's like looking at the center of the Earth. Worse and worse. It, <laughs> you feel your soul leave your body. You feel despair descend. <laughs> you feel despair for yourself and for others that they may be trying this out. Yeah, but uh, um, my husband thinks it sounds delicious. So uh, I will let I, you know about my impending divorce. <laughs> we should see if we can get them by mail order. You know, maybe we can have them send one to you and force him to eat it. Be like, happy birthday. And he'll be like, yeah, great. This is great. I imagine oh. this is those people that do those marathons through Disney. Oh, yeah. The to the the food uh, the food competitions that they they try and eat so many hot dogs. No, the runners, the ones that like run. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Carbo load after or whatever. Right. They're so they're so hungry and depleted. <laughs> no, think about somebody coming to the the finish line of a marathon. And instead of handing them a cup of water, you just hold out one of these things and they grab it and they're like, "What? Ugh. This is the worst." Like here, this mm. is your medal now. Right. <laughs> Here's what you get for winning. Yeah. This is what America has done. <laughs> this is what well, we come to during the pandemic. It's not a competition, but you know, I think you probably won with that story because I just can't even Everything think about is a competition, that. and I definitely won because that was just. I do. I feel. I I could weep just thinking about it. Just looking at these pictures. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll declare you the uh, the 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 winner for this week at least. Woo-hoo! <laughs> All right, that's explained this to me. Uh, thank you very much, Mercedes Yardley, for showing up and, and talking about it, and you know, making fun of me and and uh, and giving me something really gross that's going to haunt my nightmares for a while. That's what I live for. <laughs> I thought so. My guest is Sarah Gormley. She's the owner-curator at the Sarah Gormley Gallery in the short north area of Columbus, Ohio. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. No, I'm glad to have you here. I I contacted you initially because I saw that this is your gallery's two-year anniversary. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, It's shocking it's shocking to me that, in fact, that I, it's still shocking that I now that I own a gallery and that mm-hmm. it's made it for two years, especially during yeah. the pandemic. Right. Uh, and that was one of my questions coming up. I know, you know, uh, after a year of this being open, basically, you have the pandemic, which is limits people's access to many of the arts, public readings, concerts and, of course, art exhibits. Uh, what was your reaction uh, to the news? I mean, a year into this. I. 
I had the benefit of being so new that I didn't know what to expect in a normal business environment. Mm, okay. I, I just tried to keep selling art and I tried yeah. to support artists and I tried to leverage Instagram as much as possible mm. to tell stories about art, knowing that people were at home and probably spending a little bit more time online and looking for things that were positive. Um, mm. And so in April, I had a show scheduled for April and I just did it all virtually. I didn't actually have the artwork physically in the gallery and I had an opening and posted, I think I posted 18 new paintings that were available over the course of an hour or 90 minutes. Um, so I, I just tried to be resilient and keep doing what I want the gallery to do. Right. And I think a lot of people figured that out, that they had to do that shift, uh, if they were going to stay above water, you know, like myself as an author, I couldn't go to conferences anymore. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do things the way I've been doing them for years. So we had to do, you know, zoom meetings, we had to do virtual this and that, you know, and it really, uh, I, I think it was helpful because we realize now that we can do those things if we can't be in person, uh, but hopefully we don't have to do them much longer. But I think it just anybody in the arts suddenly uh, had to figure out a new way to to do things. I mean, not just not necessarily their own art, but getting their work out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, of course, now as we look back, we didn't know how long this thing <laughs> Was Absolutely. How, yeah. So you thought I was like, oh, a month or two. And, sure. <laughs> and then I think some things lifted. And I, I believe I had a small masked opening and had the mm. artwork in the gallery in June. Okay. Um, so, so yeah. And that, you know, the openings for a gallery, well, to me, that's, that's sort of a magic moment where people are coming into the gallery and seeing art that they haven't seen before and the artist is there. And when you're able to hear an artist describe his or her work in person, there's just something that it's so beautiful. And so I've, I've missed that and I've, I've missed sort of the celebratory environment. Um, you know, that said, people, once we felt safe and had not a huge crowd and had everybody in masks, you know, we, we just rolled with it. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, right. Uh, going back a little bit. I mean, I, I've read a few articles that I, and I understand that you originally thought about uh, the gallery as just an occasional pop-up. Uh, can you explain <laughs> yeah. how you went from pop-up to a two year anniversary in your location? Yeah. So what happened is um, I moved to the short North, to the short North in January of 19. And I was hmm. at a bit of a career transition. I was doing some consulting. I'm a recovering marketing executive <laughs> and somehow the space was available uh, right at high on high street. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to have an art gallery, so I should just do it. It's, and it's honestly the least amount of thought I've put into any step of my life or career. And I, I mean, it, I decided in February to open a little gallery for a few months in April. Hmm. And so, but then once I did the work, for the pop-up, including a website and Instagram. And I was like, well, I can't just do this for a few months. I at least have to do it for a year, which has now turned right. into two years. And right. I, uh, I absolutely 
love it. I still say sometimes I don't know what I'm doing, but I think that's an entrepreneurial reality. (laughs) You make it, you make it up as you go. And, um, so yeah, it's been super challenging and incredibly rewarding. And there are so Columbus has such a rich arts community. So I often say, you know, I don't think I could be doing what I'm doing anywhere else but Columbus. Yeah, I, I was having, uh, I had a couple of uh, earlier interviews and we were just talking about the environment for arts in general. Like uh, when I got here and started going to this uh, writer's group and I found such a great home for writers, for poets, uh, for artists, and, and just whatever discipline people were, were doing for their art, there was there was a really good support here in Columbus. And I certainly don't know if I'd still be writing if, if I'd been in another city. I don't know if there have been that same welcoming feeling, you know? Yeah. And I wish, listen, I wish I knew what the magic fairy dust was or the (laughs) formula for it, but you can say, I mean, you can be at a party or a dinner and say, you're an artist or have an art gallery or a writer and nobody, mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. nobody does yeah. that thing that they might do. <laughs> you know, I was in New York and San Francisco where they might kind of be like a mm, little cocked eyebrow, like really, really? Right. And here yeah. it's like, Oh, that's cool. Tell me about your work. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I, uh, that writing group, uh, when I started, you know, there was maybe 10 or 12 members and they're all, you know, 20 years later are still very active in the arts community, still giving back. Some of them are, you know, work for magazines here in town or they, you know, run different uh, programs for artists or for authors. And uh, it, it, it just kind of goes to, to show that, you know, how, how they were treated and they want to give people that same opportunity that they, mm-hmm. they got. You know? yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, excuse me. I know you came from uh, Zanesville, and you did a, an exhibition called Zanesville in the Short North. Can yes. you talk about the concept behind that a little bit? Well, um, you know, so I grew up in Zanesville, technically outside of Zanesville in Chandlersville, sure. Ohio, on a big, okay. beautiful farm. Um, yeah. And so I came home to Ohio, let's see, the end of 2017. My mom was sick, so I came home to help sort of take care of her at the end of her life. And I lived on the farm for about a year. And I just, you know, I love Zanesville and there's so much talent there. And I felt, you know, I, I guess I felt a little bit of a, a tinge of guilt about moving to Columbus. Um, and I had some personal reasons for that. My boyfriend lives here and um, it's a little more city, big city. And so I thought as a tribute to Zanesville and to showcase so much talent that I could put this show together. And it was, it was a, it was a celebration. Um, and I remember the opening, I think it was a Sunday. I would have to go back Mm. and look, but I mean, it was the biggest opening I've had and there were many artists in it. So that helps, but so many people drove over from Zanesville. And I also think many people in Columbus, um, had their eyes opened a bit to just how many fabulous artists reside in Zanesville. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, certainly when you uh, can leave your hometown and feel guilty about it, but then do something <laughs> big like that to, to honor your hometown, that's very cool that you can do, sort of have your foot in both places yes. at least for a little while. Yes, and yeah. I, um, I'm on the board of the museum there, and mm-hmm. two of the artists who have had solo shows in my gallery, I found through the Zanesville Museum of Art. They do an Ohio annual uh, exhibit. And so um, found one of my artists from Cleveland through that. And so there, there is a nice connectivity. 
and I'm back and forth and I use a framer from Zanesville. And so it's still Columbus is now my home, but Zanesville will also always be my home. Right. Yeah. I'm originally from Lima and I, I go back and there's, you know, bookstores and comic book stores and stuff that I, I love to talk with them. In fact, I did an interview with a comic book store owner from my hometown for this, uh, for this podcast. So it's, it's great to, oh God, to I love that. that somebody can still have a comic yeah. book store. That's right. Awesome. So few and far between. And I, 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 growing up in that town, I don't remember uh, in particular one when I, a comic book store when I was growing up. So for him to do that and to also do a lot of events that he does for the community is, is really cool. And to be able to go back and visit him and say, all right, I went to the comic book shop in my hometown. <laughs> you know, it was pretty cool. Um, so you've had, a, a, aside from the one we just talked about, you've had a lot of very uh, sort of different concepts uh, featured in your gallery. Uh, what do you look for in an artist for an exhibition or what do you look for in their work when you want to set up an exhibition? Um, that's a great question and there are probably different ways to answer it, but no, sure. I think, um, so the, the gallery itself, I want people to experience art and buying art as a source of joy. I think mm -hmm. it's, and so for me as a new gallery owner, I think about the way that I buy art and the way I encourage people, even if they're first time buyers to, right. and it's, if, if you, if you, if something stays with you, right. If you go into a gallery right. and Absolutely. you see something, there might be 27 pieces on the wall, but there's one and you, you keep coming back to it. You don't know why, or maybe you do know why, and you can't yeah. let it go. Right. Um, that's the way I buy art. And that's the way I choose artists to have shows in the gallery. And cool. I'm approached regular, regularly by artists, and I love that. And I'm very direct and honest. And I say, you know, I'm like I'm booked out through February of next year. Right. But I always look at a portfolio. I'll, I'm always willing to speak to somebody. And and sometimes my first reaction is mm, maybe not a fit. Right. Um. But then sometimes I'm still thinking about it. Or yes. still thinking about it a week later or two weeks later, or I go back into a file or go online and, and, and look at something. So it's, it's, um, it's not a perfect science, but right. the shorthand is if I don't love it, I probably can't sell it. Right. And even though art is a wonderful thing that we should all experience and enjoy, it's also a business. For me, so <laughs> so I have to I have to feel a, a strong enough passion that I want um, I, I want to feel confidently that I can sell it. Right, and it has to be a matter of attracting people into the studio or online for a look or onto your Instagram and getting in interested from there and, and making that transition to come and see it in person. And if that doesn't do it for you. Uh, you might not be confident it's going to do it for somebody else. Correct. And it's also, my mother used to say, taste, not truth about <laughs> anything, right? Sure. Clothes, fashion, art, decor. Yeah, and so even though I try to have a new show every month, I also have a wall in the back of the gallery that is installed more like a, a salon or a gallery wall where I'll, I will have art from previous shows or shows that are coming up so that people have some variety. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, comparing to books like we have before, I mean, there are books that I've picked up and looked at and said, I don't know if this is for me, but by the end of it, like you, like you said, you can't let it go. That There's a storyline or a character or something in it 
that, um, you know, in that book that you might not have thought was going to be your thing at first. And suddenly you just can't stop thinking about it or recommending it to other people. Um, I, I can see how that, that, uh, that, that sort of rubs off into the art world as well, or it's comparable to the art world as well. But, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And one thing that's been really rewarding and enjoyable for me is to watch first time buyers um, kind of get their sea legs and, mm-hmm. and buying. And it's a confidence level. Right. Because a lot of people, and this is the really fun one where, you know, a lot of people have the financial means, but they still aren't sure what they should be buying right. or if they should be buying something. And then when you kind of help them see, well, really what you need to know is, do you love it? <laughs> right. And if you exactly. love it yeah. and your spouse or partner isn't going to kick you out of the house, <laughs> Right. then buy it. Like it's, it's, it's not complicated. And so I've yeah. watched one client in particular go from thinking she could only have things that her interior designer or some expert told her to buy. And now she's been like set loose and now she <laughs> buys what she wants and she gets so excited. And it's, um, and it's fun to see that sort of evolution and an, and an excitement and then they meet the artist and follow the artist and so it creates this whole sort of cycle right i mean with art being so subjective and so very personal to everyone it's very tough to have someone come in and say well this piece would look good over by your couch just because they have the same color that doesn't you know you may not love seeing it by your couch every day it may mean absolutely nothing to you hanging on that wall for the next 10 20 right. years and if you love it there's always a place for it Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it, can, it can lean. It can lean against the living room wall for three years right. until you move, and then there'll be a place for it. Or you put it. I mean, it's just it's 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 fun to um, to see where things move around in your home and your life. Right. Uh, you said that uh, you, you know you believe that uh, owning original art can be uh, joy for everyone, a source of joy. Uh, is there a certain power that you personally feel that art holds? Uh, you know, is it looking at that piece that you fell in love with and, and still love 20 years ago, is it uh, just that it's so personal to you that you picked it out? Or do you think there's more to uh, more to it than that? Well, um, that, again, great question. And there are different, <laughs> um, there are several levels to the question sure. and therefore okay. the answer. So the easy, well, first of all, many artists express um, reactions to, social commentary, for instance, or, you know, I mean, the, the artists are expressing a reaction to what's going on in, in the world. And so sometimes people, you know, that resonates with somebody. Um, or it could be just the way it makes you feel. You know, you, right. you, you see something, I'm looking at my May artist, and I have a piece of his in my kitchen. And it's completely soothing. The minute I look at it, it just there's a sense of calm that comes over me. And um but then, then so there's the, there's the story of the artwork itself, and each piece of artwork has some sort of a story that the artist either intended or hopes that a viewer or buyer or client would get from it. But then the second level, and I love this, is sort of the story that art, that these pieces become for you in your life. And my favorite story is the first piece of artwork that I ever owned was a gift to me um, and really started this gallery idea, if I'm being honest. So yeah, I graduated from college and my grandma Cameron came over for graduation and asked me what I wanted for a gift. And I took her into the art center 
and showed her this piece of art by a classmate of mine, Matt Wentz. He happened to be in there with his parents. <laughs> and she looked at me and she was, you know, she probably had white gloves on and pearls and said, <laughs> well, Sarah, I don't understand. I don't understand what it is. It's an abstract. <laughs> right. And she said, but if you love it, then you should have it. That's your gift. So, wow. and it was his first sale. Uh, and he's an artist living in Chicago now. And so I'm looking at it in my living room and it has traveled with me from, I graduated from DePaul in Indiana. Then it went to Chicago. Then it went to New York. Then it went to San Francisco. Wow. <laughs> and now it's in yeah. Ohio. And I think about sort of how it's been sort of a companion throughout my journey. Cool. And so the, the 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 art also becomes part of your personal story. So right, I well, don't know if that right. makes sense, but that's the way no, I think of it. That's a great story. That's terrific. Uh, so as you look now, you're you're celebrating the second anniversary. Is there anything you want to see different by the third anniversary or the fourth? Is there something new you want to do in the coming years? This is something that's been difficult for me because. Hmm. I, I wouldn't describe myself as a type A person, but I think others might. <laughs> I can be, I can be yeah. a little bit rigorous and I'm a data junkie and I measure everything. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a marketer. Right. And yeah. so it's the first time in my career that I've intentionally tried not to be super prescriptive and, yeah. and sort of let yeah. things just flow and right. see what happens. And so after two years, I I kind of think I know what I do well, and I think I know where I need some help, hint, hint, anything that's like (laughs) operational accounting. (laughs) There you go. So I probably need some help. Um, But I think it's just finding finding more amazing artists, and it's building uh, the network of buyers and clientele. and. You know, I'm, I'm quite proud that in two years I've sold 276 pieces and of those 276 pieces, 78 pieces went to homes outside of Ohio. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I've managed to reach people um, in 19 different states in Canada. And so I think I just, I have to keep working and hustle right. and, and, do do what I'm doing. <laughs> and again, yeah. I, I just, there's so much opportunity and the Columbus arts community is so supportive. The other gallerists, um, the artists here. And so I'm really, I, I'm kind of like undone <laughs> that I get to do what I do. So Yeah, that's terrific. Well, congratulations again on your two year anniversary. Um, and uh, we hope to talk to you again. Uh, Sarah Gormley is the owner and curator at the Sarah Gormley Gallery. We'll have a link there in the show notes. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.
I'm Drew. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. We host the Movie Wars podcast. We pit the most legendary films of all time against one another using our theoretical scorecard, which consists of some classic categories like best cast, as well as off-the-wall categories like which gang would you rather be in from our Goodfellas vs. The Godfather episode, or who would you rather be eaten by, the shark or the T-Rex from our Jurassic Park vs. Jaws episode. And our matchups aren't always obvious. We go out of our way to find connective tissues between the films we choose. You won't want to miss Randos, which is the result of us doing hours of research and preparation for each show. You're guaranteed to hear facts that you won't even find in the deepest corners of the internet. Check out episodes like There Will Be Blood vs. No Country for Old Men and Total Recall vs. Minority Report. If you want to hear a hilarious and informative approach to stacking the greatest films of all time against one another, check out Movie Wars. 